0: Welcome to the LSE Events Podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences.
1: Okay, so welcome everybody. Um, I'm Bernard von Stengel, I'm the acting chair for this session and our head of department uh, had to stay home with covid so, I'll stand in. I'm also here in the mathematics department, and we are very happy to have tonight as a speaker a very well known mathematical historian or historical mathematician. I'm not sure. <laughs> um, who is actually also here, a visiting professor with us, normally at the um, Open University. And this is June barrow Green who um, worked at the, at the Open University since um, a while ago. Now, I mean, you know, almost 20, 30 years. Um, she was from 2003 to 2005 president of the British Society for the History of Mathematics. And um, from 2007 to 2018, an elected member of the Council of the London Mathematical Society and served as a librarian for, for the Society. Now, during that time, also something else out, came out, which I, um, at the time, saw with absolute enthusiasm, which is, uh, this book, now it's actually, this is only the cover of the book because the book itself is several kilograms heavy, so I decided not to bring it. It's the Princeton Companion to Mathematics, is a, a co-editor, which is a large collection of articles about mathematical subjects and also history of mathematics. Uh, that explains a subject that you think was always too complicated to study because there's a lot of, you have to study entire books. These are very good articles, 10 pages, that give you an idea of what a particular mathematical field is about or what uh, the history of that field is. I mean, it's a a highly instructive book. And I was was head of the department at the time, I ordered for every graduate student in the department a, a, a copy they came out as a, as a special deal. So we had about 50 copies of these huge books this week in the department, and June, as I say, is one of the people responsible for that. that. Um, June was in 2014, awarded the first, I shouldn't probably talk so much, I should give you the <laughs> chair very soon, but um, won several awards um, and in particular as uh, the most recent honor was a speaker at the International Congress of Mathematicians, I think that was an online, I suspect, you, I mean, unfortunately. But um, anyhow, we were very happy to have you here. And so I, I thought I cut my introduction short and so give you the floor. Thank you very much for coming. Thank you.
2: Well, thank you very much for that nice um, uh, introduction. And so my talk is going to be about um, Ronald Ross and Hilda Hudson, the Python collaboration on the theory of epidemics. And some of you may well be familiar with the name of Ronald Ross, but um, probably um, not so familiar with the name of Hilda Hudson. Um, But I will. uh, So I'm going to begin by telling you about Ronald Ross. And and then I will tell you something about Hilda Hudson um, and their collaboration together and why it's rather surprising. Um, Because Ronald Ross was a physician and Hilda Hudson was a dramaturg. Okay. So, um, Ronald Ross, so he's well-known in medical circles because he was the person who discovered um, the role of the mosquito in the transmission of malaria, in fact, won the Nobel Prize for medicine for it in 1902. Um, He was in the Indian Medical Service, um, comes back to uh, Britain at the end of the uh, 19th century to Liverpool. Um, is there for um, really up till uh, 1912 when he um, comes to London uh, to King's College and then during the war he's in the war office um, and all the time he's doing this work on uh, malaria and particularly I mean during the war there was a lot of um, there was a great need for people who were trying to understand things uh, like uh, diseases and contagious diseases in the trenches for the, for the men in the trenches. And he was kind of very involved in that sort of thing. Then he, uh, at the end of his career, he's working in the Ministry um, of Pensions. Um, so as I say, I mean, he, the fact that uh, he won the Nobel Prize for Medicine is perhaps the thing that people really um, know about him. Um, but perhaps the thing they don't know about him is that he, um, uh, he has a passion for mathematics. And this is a passion he only discovers when he's in India. He happens to, as he says, this is from his memoirs. Um, and he says when he commenced to read an old prize book, which he'd won at school um, called the Orbs of the Heavens. And, it, and in this book, he learned about how mathematics was absolutely fundamental um, to the astronomers um, and how they um, continued with their, their research. And, and he decided that's it. I really wanted to study maths and he buys um, as he says, I bought nearly all Todd Hunter's series. Now, Todd Hunter was the mathematics textbook writer of the 19th century. Um, he wrote textbooks on, well, Euclid, algebra, calculus, and so on. If you wanted to uh, study maths in the middle of the 19th century, Todd Hunter was a very good person to learn uh, your maths from. Um, and uh, this is exactly what uh, Ross does. And and it's important to know that he... is. He is an autodidact as far as maths is concerned. He does not have a formal mathematical training, but he's he gets completely um, uh, bitten by maths. And if you go and look at his archive in, in um, uh, the Royal College of Physicians and Surgeons in Glasgow, there's pages and pages of his mathematical notes, um, which just shows how he was always kind of doing some sort of maths uh, really from this, this time onwards. Um, and, and, When he comes back to England, in his uh, last letter, he writes to a friend of his, the biologist Nuttall. He says, um, can you tell me whether immunity has ever been studied mathematically? Um, And at this time, he's coming back, he's come to Liverpool, he reads a paper in front of the Liverpool Mathematical um, Society on on the algebra of space. It's telling, I think this paper is published, but he pays for the publication. So it's not uh, published in, in a journal. Um, it's a paper where he's actually trying to build together ideas of uh, Hamilton's Quaternions and Grassmann's algebra. Um, it's not a work of of, of a huge merit that has to be said. But, um, but the fact is, it does show his sort of uh, passion for math at the time. But back to this question, well, whether immunity had ever been studied mathematically. Indeed, it had. Back in the 18th century, Daniel Bernoulli, one of the uh, uh, a member of the, the great Bernoulli family, um, comes up with an epidemiological model for smallpox. And, um, and various other people do things, perhaps one of the, the better known is William Farr, who's considered to be one of, the fa- modern, one of the founders of medical statistics. He comes up with the bell-shaped or normal curve uh, for epidemics. And, the, and there, are, there are others um, as well. Um, so Ross isn't the first person to think about immunity Um, from a mathematical perspective, but he thinks about it, as we'll see, in a rather different way. Um, And so he starts uh, looking at it from his sort of mosquito um, and malaria perspective, and he's invited to the big congress in St. Louis in the States in 1904, the International Congress of Arts and Science. And this is a big deal. This is a really big Congress. Um, people come from, many people come from Europe, including, uh, for example, the, the great mathematician, Poincare, um, there's a math section. There's sections on all, all different sciences and things. And um, as, uh, as he says, this is the first time he presents his, his, some mathematics within an um, epidemiological context. Um to do with mosquito reduction, and, as he says himself, he said he read the paper to um uh, uh, to hundreds of doctors, but they were very disappointed because, of course, they were expecting him to be only talking about medical matters mm-hmm. um and um so um so this this was you know, i mean he 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 recalls this in his memoirs, and the, one of the key things, as far as my talk is concerned, and the work I've been doing, is the um, the comment that he makes um, in the public in the published paper, because he says that the results he had with this particular problem, which I'll describe in a minute, he said they agree with those of the late Ronald Hudson, who kindly commenced a similar analysis for me shortly before his lamented death. Now, Ronald Hudson was Hilda Hudson's brother, and when we come to uh, Hilda Hudson, I think. Um, this is a really key factor in their collaboration because Ross was known to be quite a difficult character. There were various, several polemics he had with other people during his career and the fact that when we when he starts working with Kilda Hudson they slot in, they start working together extremely well straight away and um, and I think the fact that he knew her brother and he knew her family is, is quite key to that relationship. Um, so what um, Ross is doing here in this paper. He's interested in if you have a bunch of mosquitoes um, that they're, they're breeding in the center of a pool. Where do they go at a certain point in time? Where are all these mosquitoes going to be? Are they all going to be around the edge of the pool? Are they going to go as far away from where they started as um, as possible, or are they going to be um, all over the place? Um, and um, and this is actually quite a hard problem, as we'll see. Um, so he he continues working on this and he writes a report on the prevention of malaria in 1908 uh, where he, he brings mathematics into that into it again and then he publishes another uh, much more general book on the prevention of malaria in 1910 um, where he's talking about epidemiologically uh, as being principally a mathematical subject but I want to um, say a little bit about the report on prevention um, of malaria because it's in this um, in this book, that he introduces the term pathometry, which is the term that's used for the papers that he writes with Walter um, hudson And also this is where he first articulates the fact that he's going to start looking at these kinds of problems of the spread of disease and, the, um, and so on, using a priori methods. So he assumes the knowledge of the causes, constructs equations, tests results with the statistics. And previously, people like far they have started with the statistics. You have an epidemic, you've got a bunch of statistics, how many people, you know, when did they get it, when did they die, and so on. And then you try and make some mathematics um, to fit with your statistics, and Ross was going the other way around. Um, and um, so then, when we come to the prevention of malaria, um, where this is where um, I've shown that on this slide where the problem is sort of articulated about this business of the mosquitoes, where are we going to find them? Um, and it says, what precisely will be the ratio of insects at a given distance from the pool? Because when well, I attempted a partial mathematical treatment of the problem, but the matter was beyond my mathematical powers, and I therefore referred it to Professor Carl Pearson. Now, Pearson was the Professor um, uh, of Statistics at uh, University College London. He was Uh, one of the kind of architects of of modern statistics. Um, And so I want to say a bit about that because he, so he writes to Pearson and Pearson says to to him, he says, well, it would require a strong mathematical analyst to solve the problem. And he says, well, actually the difficulty is that if we frame it in the way that you've done with mosquitoes in a pool and things, the mathematicians aren't going to be interested. You know, it's far too practical. We have to have something a bit more abstract. So he said, well, if I restate it as a chessboard problem or something like that, we might get some mathematicians to work on it. So then he says, well, I'll, write, I'll get in touch with you again. I'm gonna put out a call at the journal Nature. I'm gonna state the problem and see whether anybody, anybody can uh, come up with a um, solution. And what does he do? So he does this, it gets published in Nature in 1905. And the key thing here is, this is what he calls the problem of the random walk. Now the random walk is um, now a really well-established um uh, 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 problem in 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 various sciences not just in mathematics in physics and chemistry biology um and uh people are looking at using the mathematics behind the random walk for things like fluctuating stops and brownian motion you know all sorts of things and people always refer to the fact that the term comes from pearson and indeed it does this is the first time it's published but in fact it really comes back to ross with his um, uh, because he's the one, when we go back and look at here, um, where he talks about the centrifugal law of random wandering. Um, and of course, um, Ross is not um, mentioned in this uh, letter that, that Pearson, Pearson writes. Um, and I just can't resist actually. Uh, he, Pearson does get some uh, very useful um, responses from, uh, from this letter. Um, and I just wanted to add to show you that what happened at the end of this when he, he replies himself and he says thanks to and um, says the kinds of things that he's got. And he says, the lesson of Lord Rayleigh's solution is that in open country, the most probable place to find a drunken man who is at all capable of keeping on his feet is somewhere near his starting point, um, which I thought was kind of, nice of a nice uh, little rejoinder um, at the end. Um, so, um. And then uh, Pearson, with a colleague of his, uh, writes a paper about the mathematical theory of of random migration, which gets published in 1906. Um, So so this is what Ross is referring to in in the 1908, uh, in in the 1910 book that he has um, uh, asked Pearson for help, and Pearson has come up with a solution. Um, Then what happens next is that the prevention of malaria goes into a second edition. and um, uh, what Ross says um, in the second edition, people have come to him um, because the mathematics he presented there is not um, is not very full, and so he adds an addendum in the second edition. And you can see it; it's some sort of thirty-five pages long. It's quite an extensive uh, mathematical elaboration of his ideas. Um, and he says, um, you know, people have, have been concerned about where I presented things because of the large number of variables involved. So he's here, he's uh, presented a system of differential equations to represent the uh, course uh, in a community of, um, uh, that are infected of a disease in a community infected by malaria. Um, and he says, well, um, the problem is that epidemiology because it's concerned with variation of disease from time to time or from place to place, must be considered mathematically, however many variables are implicated, it, if it's to be considered scientific, you know, scientifically at all. And the mathematical method of treatment is really nothing but the application of careful reasoning the problems at issue. And then he says, I am convinced that many readers will be able to follow the work without difficulty. Um, a few years, well, um, nearly 20 years later, he does slightly revise his view about that remark. He says, the addendum was written in a great hurry. The whole article was very confusedly written. and was almost meaningless to readers and even to myself. Um, so um, there wasn't a huge uh, sort of response to this. Um, and in fact, um, people again kind of came back to him. So he then uh, writes another shorter article in Nature, um, which is a response to some clarifications. Um, and what's interesting here is that in this article in Nature, he says that he's been in touch with um, uh, Frank Carey, who's a professor of maths at Liverpool, and Carey has referred him to Forsyth, who is the um, Satellarian Professor at Cambridge. That's the, basically the only pure mathematics professorship at Cambridge at the time. So he's being put in touch with um, the sort of main people, if you like, um, within the mathematical community. So he is getting himself um, sort of into. Uh, the maths community. But um one of the things that he kind of is always bashing the drum on is the fact that doctors are not interested in anything to do with, with maths. Um and that this is kind of holding things back. And um and on this, this quote here, he says, Well, at present medical ideas regarding the, these factors, the things that he sort of be. Uh, writing about are uh, generally so nebulous that almost any statements about them pass muster and often retard or misdirect important preventative measures for years. Um, and we keep seeing him um, making these kinds of remarks about the the, the really, the problem that uh, between the medical profession and, and mathematicians. Um, um, one, one response he does get is from the um, uh, mathematician, Um, And demographer Alfred Lotka, um, who proposes a solution to Ross's malaria problem, proposes a solution to the differential equations. Ross has sort of come up basically with what he thinks is going to be the conclusion, but hasn't really solved solved the equations. And Lotka is somebody who kind of is woven in throughout this story one way or another. We'll see his name coming up again. He's probably better known to mathematicians for the uh, Lotka-Volterra equations in in ecology. Um, so then we move on a few years to 1915. And Ross publishes a paper in the British Medical Journal. And, um, uh, and he refers back to this work in the uh, book on prevention of malaria. And this is where he talks about a priori pathometric equations. And he, he gives a sort of outline of the sorts of ideas that he's got about um, uh, epidemi- epidemiology being studied mathematically. Um, but he says, as a kind of, uh, in this paper at the end, he says, the full paper on the subject is going to be more suitable for mathematical than for medical publications. He thinks, well, you know, there's no way the doctors are going to understand what I'm going to do. I'm going to have to publish it somewhere else. Um, he does get a response from John Brownlee, um, who has been doing work on epidemics, but doing it from an ast- astar- stu- or I, um stuori uh, uh, perspective. Um, and he he writes um, uh, an article for the BMJ, which sort of brings people up to date with the sorts of things he's been doing. He has written quite a few articles uh, previously and Ross uh, refers to his work. Um, but, oops, oh, sorry. Um, um, and then what happens is uh, Ross's paper, the mathematical bit of, um, that he's referred to gets published in the Proceedings of the Royal Society. And uh, submits it in 1915. It gets published in 1916. And so, what's in this uh, in this work? Well, um, he says this is a much more advanced and general development of the work that he'd written up in the, in the addendum, which had been very much con- um, uh, concerned with um, malaria. So he's now Widening his ideas open and saying, look, actually, we can have some general models to show how something, not just a disease spreads, but also you know, other, other things, we can, we can apply this in, in various ways. But if we, if we want to look at it in just particularly from a disease perspective, he says, well, we can have something like we have a population of living individuals that you know, some of them are affected by a disease, some of them aren't. Um, and we, we look at them as proportion. And we look at what happens if those that are unaffected become affected and and those who are unaffected, then they either recover or they uh, or they die. So they become unaffected. And then what what are the things we need to think about? Well, we need to think about the birth rates, the death rates, the emigration and the immigration for both sets, for the affected and the unaffected. And then if we, we think about all of these things, we put them all together. what um, and we're looking at it as time passes, what will be the number of affected individuals of new cases and of the total population uh, at the particular time. So he, he ends up with um, a system of three differential equations with these eight variational um, elements, which he considers as constants. And he examines various um, different cases. Um, and it doesn't get much uh, reaction, but of course we are now in uh, the middle of World War I. Um, but he does get a reaction from Major Greenwood. Uh, Major was uh, a first name; it wasn't his uh, a, an army title. And um, He says, "No sensible man doubts the importance of investigations such as these. It's high time epidemiology was extricated from its present humiliating position as the plaything of bacteriologists and public health officials, or as at best a field for antiquarian research." Um, so he's he's really on, you know he's really on. On Ross's side here. He, it's a kind of general article but it, it's um, prompted by, by this article of Ross's. Um, so then what happens next is at the end of part one, uh, that was part one of the paper, Ross's promise is going to be a part two. He gives the titles of the sections to appear but when the part two appears some of those uh, section titles have gone, some new ones had appeared um, and so the question is what happened? Why, why did he not uh, continue as he, as, he had, uh, as he had promised. He got bogged down with the maths. Um, he sort of knew the sorts of things he wanted to do but he, he couldn't actually do the maths and he also knew that he needed to have somebody to help him with, um, with the statistics because the idea had been to actually get the theory all sorted out. And then to throw the statistics at it and see whether actually the theory did um, match up um, with the statistics. So whether you actually it confirmed um, what the statistics told you um, once you um, compared the two things together. Um, um, so we can see things like this is a draft um, that's in the, in the uh, Ross archive in, in Glasgow, and um, in the preface to Part Two. Um, This is what he says, he says um, that the Royal Society was kind enough to give him a grant to provide him with assistance to complete the paper and carry it it further, and Miss Hilda P. Hudson was appointed for the work, and the continuation of the paper has been written uh, with her, and I'd like to take the opportunity to express my obligations to her, for her valuable assistance, especially in regard to Part 3. So now uh, it's time to introduce Hilda Hudson. So she was, she came from a very mathematical family. I've already uh, mentioned her brother, but her father was professor of maths at King's College London. He was a, a Cambridge uh, Wrangler. He'd been the third Wrangler. His um, Her mother was, um, had also studied maths at Newnham, uh, had met her father um, because he was tutoring the women at Newnham. And so she left Newnham after a year and married uh, her father. Um, her sister also studied maths. So the two girls, studied maths at Cambridge, um, and at a time when women could not get degrees at Cambridge. Women could not get degrees at Cambridge until 1948, Um, and at the time Gertrude and Union were not part of the university. The women were allowed to sit the mathematical Tripos. that battle had been won for them by by Charlotte Scott in 1880, who had sat the mathematical Tripos. but at that point that you could only, as a woman, sit it if you had permission, she did so well, she was equivalent to the Eighth Wrangler that the university said, well, all right, um, any woman who wants to can sit with the um, but uh, Hilda Hudson's sister was equivalent to the Eighth Wrangler in 1900, and she herself was equivalent to the Seventh Wrangler in 1903. And this, this was, this, these are remarkable results, really remarkable results. She becomes a lecturer um, uh, at Newnham, um, and then she takes a job at the West Ham Technical Institute as a um, sort of lecturer in pure and applied maths. During the war, she's with the uh, air ministry and working in aeronautical engineering. And after the war, for a short time, she has a job with uh, Parnell Company for aircraft manufacturing. So that's, that's her, her working life. As for her academic life, um, while she's at Newnham, she goes to Berlin for a while to attend lectures by Schwarz, Schottke, and Landau. And this again, this was unusual. Um, not many male uh, postgraduates studied in, in um, abroad at the time. So for her to go was a, it tells you something about how good she was as a mathematician, also tells you that her parents could afford uh, for her to go, but also that they uh, supported her. Um, and then in 1906, um, she gets an MA from Trinity College Dublin. Um, and this is, um, means that she was one of what was known as the Steamboat Ladies. And these were women from Oxford and Cambridge who traveled to Dublin to get um, degrees that were awarded by Trinity College. So Trinity College had set up, um, they had this arrangement because of course, there were also men at um, Oxford and Cambridge at the time who couldn't get degrees because, for example, if they were Jewish. Um, and um, if they didn't subscribe to the thirty-nine articles or something, um, and then at the, for this particular period, they allowed women uh, to do the same thing. And I, apparently, they were completely overwhelmed. They had no idea that there would be that many women would would come over um, and get um, and, and get degrees. And uh, Hilda, Hilda Hudson was one of them. So. Um, what else? She was the first woman to give a lecture at an International Congress of Mathematicians. She wasn't the first woman to be invited. That uh, honour went to uh, Laura Fassati in 1908 in Rome, but uh, sadly she died before she could give her lecture. But Hilda Hudson did give her lecture at Cambridge um, in the uh, UK. Um, uh, the year 1912, 1913, she, uh, she goes to Bryn Mawr, the Women's College in, in the US, which in fact is where Charlotte Scott the woman I mentioned, who was equivalent to the H. in 1880, was the professor of maths. Um, she gets uh, a doctorate from Trinity College, Dublin um, in 1913. Um, and then we see she works with Ross during 1916. In 1917, she's the first woman to be on the council of the London Mathematical Society. She gets an OBE for her work, war work, that's the aeronautical work. And then in 1927, she uh, publishes her book, Promotive Transformations in Plane and Space. Uh, So as I said at the beginning, she's a geometer. Um, uh, Her publications, her papers, her research is all in geometry. And uh, her book in 1927 was the sort of culmination of of her work in in geometry. Um, And it's the thing, if people know anything about her, it is for this this book uh, that she published in 1927. With the book published, we'll see that she comes back and she works with um, with Ross again. So, how does their relationship begin? So, the first thing, we, uh, first letter I found in the archives that r- relates to this is she writes to him and she says, I understand that Miss Thomas, and I don't know who Miss Thomas was, has mentioned me to you in connection with mathematical work of importance during the war, and I should be very glad to know about it. I can only assume that she might, Miss Thomas might have been someone at the West Ham Technical Institute, because that's where Hudson is at the time. Um, but it's, it's quite clear from the correspondence that she had never met Ross um, before. Um, and he replies, he says, I'm very glad you may be available, uh, especially as your brother, who was unfortunately killed in Wales 10 years ago, was a friend of mine and helped me considerably with some old mathematical work which I've been doing. And her brother, who had been senior ranger in 1904 and who I mentioned earlier, um, very tragically was killed um, uh, climbing in Wales um and i think that this is as i said earlier this is key to the relationship that he knew the family he knew about her he knew of the, the sort of mathematical um there was mathematics in, in in the family there um and so the the letters become very um engaging very very quickly i think um and um uh, so what does she ask him, uh, uh, what does Ross ask Hudson to do? Um, he explains to her what's been in the first paper, um, what he's done. Um, and he says, well, what I really want is the application um, of my curves to action, uh, the application of the curves to actual epidemics. So so the statistical work, so sort of to, to throw the, um, the, the numbers at it. But in fact, he's got bogged down with what's actually he wants to put in the paper. When you look at the... Uh, uh, papers in the archives, the things that she's doing, he's sort of uh, that original second draft when you see the things that she writes, that things get changed quite considerably. He also mentions to her if she's not quite up to speed with the statistics, well then he's sure to can get Carl Pearson to help. Importantly, he mentions that the work will be published with names appearing jointly. This would not have been necessarily the case and he knew that she was a published mathematician this would be something that would be important for her. Um, and um, he was going to be the lead author of all. It, was his, it were his ideas. It was, his, it was all basically originating with him, but he was going to put her name on the paper jointly. And uh, this, there were not apart from him, there were not so many papers with uh, joint publications at the time. Pearson was one of the few people who did also publish with, uh, with women. He had uh, some women uh, computers. Uh, working in his uh, laboratories. But but I think this shows in a way to me how keen he was um, uh, to get her working alongside because of course the fact that um, uh, he wrote to the Royal Society and he said that he asked the Royal Society for a government to pay for a lady mathematician to assist him was because of course he knew that during the war there would be no chance of getting um, a gentleman mathematician. so, um, and then she was going to be paid for the work. Uh, Hudson responds, she says, yep, I'm going to do it. And she thinks she finds the ideas all very interesting and just as important as if it had been the war job that she had supposed it to be. So my reading of that is I think that she, she quite reasonably would have assumed it would have been something to do with um, ballistics, or or something, probably not knowing quite why Ross would be involved with that, but or something that was more directly connected with the work that he was doing in the, um, with the uh, War Office, or, or whatever. Um, but this was very clearly um, a mathematical problem that had application not just just for the war. Um, uh, Ross is very happy with the with the arrangement, so he makes he has an announcement. There's an announcement in the British Medical Journal. Um, and uh, he announces her appointment and says that the work's going to be carried on in the Marcus Beck laboratory. The Royal Society of Medicine gives it a, a really official sort of scan. So, um, so now they can, they can get underway. And, um, and what happens is that two papers get published. It, in reality, it's only one paper. Um, the two papers are published consecutively um, in the proceedings. And it's to do with the policy of the proceedings, the number of pages that they would allow for an article. Journals tend to have these kinds of uh, of policies. So rather than publish it in one of the other Royal Society journals, um, where it would be sort of separated from the original part, it makes sense to publish them um, as two um, uh, consecutive articles. Um, So, um, uh, interestingly, the paper was refereed by Eddington. So, Eddington was a professor of astronomy at Cambridge, probably best known for the fact that he went out on the expedition in 1919 to, to um, look at um, Einstein's, to check whether Einstein's theory of, of, of relativity um, was uh, worked out uh, correctly. Um, so, probably not somebody you would expect to be refereeing a paper on um, mathematical epidemiology. But of course, again, um, Cambridge and um, um, sort of mathematicians everywhere, were either um, have, have been conscripted for war work in various, in various ways. Eddington, the university had applied for, um, uh, for him uh, not to be sent to the front or to do anything else. Um, and uh, he was also had religious reasons for not wanting to fight too. Um, so anyway, so he's the person who ends up um, refereeing it. And he says, well, the paper gives a useful survey of the possibilities and should be a guide in interpreting the significance of epidemic statistics. The theory is of course, rather dull and the mathematics elementary, but it is evidently desirable that some such treatment of statistics should be made. And the authors in the preface state that they are undertaking application to actual figures. So he, he picks up on this. He says, well, this is, you know, are really, okay, they can do this math. The math isn't terribly interesting, but you know, it just might be right which would be, um, um, if they can throw some statistics at it, that will show that it is right, and then then it can be very applicable and and we can use it. Um, So so the papers are indeed published. And um, so just to give a brief uh, overview of what's in them, um, again, as I've said earlier, we have have the two um, uh, cases of people, Um, we have the effective and the non-effective cases of proportion of a population, um, and we consider them as functions of time, and then we look at them uh, depending on how these eight variation elements. Uh, what happens when they're given different values? And um, they 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 do they do do these um, sort of uh, calculations, and they look at various examples, and particularly to begin with, thinking about um, an infection rate of uh, one person will in- infect one other person daily, and then they look at lower rates of infection. And, and then they get a bunch of different results, depending on, on, um, how they, they tweak the various numbers. Um, so if you suddenly, if the contagion suddenly ceases, um, but everything else remains the same, then the mod, their model says, well, actually not everything is, 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 not going to stop automatically what the population will continue to suffer from its effects for some time afterwards, which of course is what we, what we see. Um, and, um, one of the things they highlight in this paper, they say, if you've got a high infection rate and the reversion rate is low, i.e. people either uh, recover or, or, or they die, then the epidemic curve becomes nearly a symmetrical uh, bell-shaped curve. And this was the, uh, this was really um, good news because this corresponded to the sorts of results that Brownlee had been getting with looking at it from the other uh, from the other way around. Um, and then in part three. They look uh, at different variations in infectivity. They bring in graphical methods and they say, well, we, we can actually, when we look at what happens with this rate of infection, we, we, can, we can see what, we know what kind of curves we, we've got, but we don't know the equations and we need to kind of work out uh, what the equations are gonna be. Um, we need to think about other things like incubation. Um, so absolute time and how long somebody might be harboring the disease before they show it and so on and the duration of, of the disease. Um, and, and one of the really key things in this third part, and this is, this is really uh, due to Hudson, is considering immunity. And so this um, gives you a third bunch of people because if you allow for infected individuals to recover into an immune state, so they're um, a, a third lot. So you, and this is a very early version of what's known as the XIR model, which probably most of you are familiar with, um, uh, which has been in the papers, of course, with it and everywhere else um, with the pandemic. So it's the susceptible infecting to removed uh, model. And they get a bunch of curves coming out, um, uh, depending on, on the rates of infectivity, the way they, they shuffle the numbers and things around. So you get things like a periodic curve when you have a regular rise and fall um, due to se- seasonal disturbances and things like we see with, uh, with, with COVID. Um, and overall they say, well, this suggests that the rise and fall of epidemics, as far as we see at present can be explained by the general laws of happenings. That's what uh, the name uh, Ross gives it, as uh, studied in this paper. So they feel that they've really um, uh, got to kind of grips with the kind of mathematics behind um, the, the um, flow, of, flow of epidemics. But, and they come up with a bunch of uh, final remarks and they say things like, well, we haven't paid much uh, attention to the actual values of the constants that we've put in for all these variation elements. Um, what we've tried to do is come up with a model that can be used in a variety of cases. Um, and we've, in one case, in part one, mortality and infectivity were the largest constants, might like be true. Um, also, um, lots of other factors that we haven't taken into account, age, gender, social conditions, and so on. Whole population divided into two classes only, except when immunity is considered. So they see that, actually, that's a, that's a problem. Um, uh, and they say, actually, it's, it's not difficult, probably, to write down the equations. You can throw a whole bunch of variables, it doesn't matter how many variables you can still write down the equations, but they're going to be jolly difficult to solve, and they'll probably be unsuitable um, to use for numerical work. And then you'd have to use um, much more um, time-consuming methods like series expansions in order to um, get anything out of them. And then they also mention the fact that if you only have a small number of people, then that uh, means you can't um, use the calculus really because you can't think uh of, if you only got a small number, you can't think of it as a continuous of them continuous functions of time, which is what um, their the whole uh, theory have been based on. So this is a, a big drawback when you've got um, just low numbers. Um, So what about the application of the theory to to actual epidemics, which is what uh, Eddington had picked up on and what Ross had promised and what actually Ross and Hudson had promised. Um, And um, it's clear that's what they intended to do. Um, They say in the beginning of uh, the preface of part two that they are starting to look at records of epidemics to see how far their results uh, may be applied to them. But we're not going to talk about that here. So that's in the part two and part three. And then we see in in October 1916 Hudson writes to Ross and she says, have you had time to go through the last set of papers I left with you? And those are the proofs of the uh, published articles. So I'm hoping they we got into printable form before we start on much numerical work. So they haven't really started on the numerical work at this time, but that's that's really what the plan is. But then things get uh, slightly scattered because in December 1916, Um, Admiralty gets in touch with Hudson, and she's offered the post of temporary technical assistant in the Aircraft Construction Department. Um, And as she says to Ross, this is nationally nationally important work and it's urgent, and so I really feel I have to accept to do this um, and uh, resign from my work with you. And Ross is very uh, sorry to lose her and hopes that she'll come back um, basically when the war is over. Um, uh, She doesn't give up on the work altogether. The correspondence does continue um, sporadically. And so for example, in March, uh, 1918, she reviews a paper uh, for Lot uh, by Lotka for Ross, but says, you know, I can't really give it the attention I'd like to because aeroplane design is rather more urgent just now. So you are still, still um, in the sort of dying stages of, of the war. Um, but then once the war is over, uh, Ross is hopeful that she'll come back, but she decides actually no, she wants to get on with her, her, her book on uh, Cremona transformations. Um, and she feels she wants to go back to Cambridge where she can be near a library. And she says, I'm, it's sad to rule out the academic work, but I feel fairly clear about it. Um, but she says, look, I've got a bunch of, um, of uh, people working with me. Um, and I think it would be really good if one of them worked with you. And in fact, probably her most um, mathematically talented assistant then writes to Ross and offers um, to work Uh, for him, but he rejects it. And he just says, no, I'm afraid, you know, I can't get money for you. I can't, you know, I can't do this anymore. Um, I'm absolutely certain that if Hudson had said, I want to carry on with this work, he would have absolutely jumped at it. He just, he knew he liked working with her. He knew he could trust her. And he he just wasn't in the frame of mind to to start working with anybody else. So how were these papers uh, received? Well, of course, again, being published during the war, people had um, other things on their mind. There is a review um, in the YAR book, uh, Polyai uh, notes them, but he says, basically, it's not to say very much about them because the main focus is not mathematical. There's no new mathematics here. So really, um, I, I don't need to, to say very much about them. And the Yahr book, of course, being the, the German reviewing journal, the reviewing journal at the time. It's like Maths I knit today. Um, Locker responds, um, but mainly to Ross's work on malaria epidemiology. So he's focusing on that aspect of it rather than on the general, um, the general um, issues that uh, the papers raise. Um, and then Ross in his memoirs writes, he says, well, um, and this is uh, sort of some six or seven years after the event, he says, well, for years I've been toiling at the attempt to fix mathematics on the general theory of epidemics. And in 1918, um, uh, Typo there. He says, The Royal Society published my first paper and gave me the capable assistant of Miss Hilda P. Hudson. After a second paper, the war interrupted our studies, but so little interest was taken in them by the health authorities that I have thought it useless to continue them since then. So he's, he's given up. He's decided, Well, you know, the, the medics aren't interested, nobody's interested. And, they, um, and he scribbles away doing other bits of maths and things, but his, his main concern, of course, is his work on various aspects of malaria. Um, so, what happens next? Well, what happens next is a very famous paper um, by Kermack and McKendrick, the contribution to the mathematical theory of epidemics. This is considered to be um, generally the kind of one of the, the, the founding paper of the SIR model. Um, but they do refer to the work of Ross and Hudson. Um, and um, so, actually, it does originate in the work of Rottenham, but it, it's made much more explicit here. And um, and when you look at the history of mathematical epidemiology, it comes back to Thomas McKendrick. But importantly for my story is that McKendrick was encouraged by Ross to study epidemics using using math. They knew each other well. They they sailed to and from Sierra Leone together. Um, and there's quite a lot has been uh, is known about the fact that they um, discussed mathematics um, a lot uh, together. Um, and uh, this, Ross sees this paper and is immediately galvanized. He's galvanized into action, and he asks Hudson if she'll continue the work on pathometry. She says to him, yes, I can give you one day a week. She's not, uh, she has no job um, at that time. After she's uh, finished working for the aircraft manufacturers in 1921. she never has another um, uh, paid no more paid employment. My assumption is that her parents had, uh, her mother had died when she was extremely young, but her father had died um, by this time. And um, her brother of course had died. Her sister doesn't marry. So I think she presumably was able to live off uh, uh, her inheritance. Um, And um, Ross, so she says, yes, I'll do it. And Ross sends her the Kermit from the Hendrick paper um, uh, and asks her what, what she thinks about it. And there's then a sort of flurry of activity because Ross then thinks, oh, well, people are now really interested in this um, uh, uh, material. Um, and he applies to all society to get the three papers published together as a book. Um, uh, H- Hudson, meanwhile, she's been reading the comic McKendrick. She's very happy the results compare favorably with theirs. Um, and she says, actually, we've really now got to get on with making these numerical comparisons and asked him for records of epidemics. And she wants actually to include that in the book. Um, And she says, also, we really need to address this problem of the constants. Um, We haven't really looked at what the best values for these constants are. And she says, well, I hope actually we can do better than Kermit and McKendrick have done with their constants. Um, But the need is to find these statistics and we need really big sets of statistics. We need ones that run to thousands of cases. Um, and, um, uh, And so this continues in January. Um, and, and we can see Ross is slightly kind of going off the board, he's slightly losing the plot. I mean, he says, I'm trying hard to understand my previous mathematical papers, but he's not really able to. And then he says, um, I, I wrote it, the paper I wrote in the proceedings to which you added the second and third parts. Well, I mean, he certainly contributed quite a bit to the second part. Um, Hudson says she doesn't want to publish a new paper with the Royal Society because that's what he's thinking about. And he wants to publish See if they can develop their ideas further, but she's quite happy for them to publish his book. Um, he then writes, Back and says, "Well, when I've been reading that dreadful paper by Ross and Hudson, and I've also understood my first paper and have greatly admired the concluding part, three by Hudson. It's very well done. Some of the figures which he produced ought to have shown Gill, who wrote his medical work on the genesis of epidemics, that we have already included his curious recuperations in our conjoint paper. But of course, doctors seldom know a word of mathematics, so they can write any the rubbish they please um so he's he's never he's never gets over this uh, problem with the doctors um and then he goes uh he goes public about them working together he says actually you know we're back on the case um um work needs to be done um and we're now um I've got Hilda Hudson back again and we're, we're now working on it um, and we're beginning to consolidate and summarise, summarise our previous studies and to develop them by means of finite calculus and decimal calculus and by use of integral equations um, and uh, so things are looking promising. Um, and what we find in the archive is a paper called Two-Party Aggregates that he's written um, and uh, to which her name gets appended but it never gets published. And this is where the quotes that I showed you uh, at the beginning came from about the addendum, because this is where he says the addendum was written in a great hurry, whole article confusedly written and almost meaningless to readers, written to myself. Um, But this, uh, there's a a lot of sort of mathematical um, sort of scribblings and things in Ross's archive, but this is the the paper that comes out of it, but actually there's nothing really, really new in it. And um, it uh, it doesn't get published. That, um, and it doesn't get submitted anywhere. But meanwhile, Hudson is uh, is still on the case. She's written a review of Perman and Kendrick for Science in Progress, and Science in Progress is the journal that Ross um, edits. He's the editor of it, and she writes a two-page, two and a bit page uh, review, um, and um, and she says that they've made a definitive, a definite addition to our knowledge on the subject on which too little work has been done, and hope that will be carried further. She's a, she's a bit. Annoyed with the, they're a bit loose mathematically. They use the square root of minus q for a real constant, and she says they don't really discuss the relative orders of quantities when they're too to be very small. But these are kind of minor minor quibbles. Um, but it shows that she's really engaged with the topic again. Um, and then she starts working on statistics. Um, she says um, what she really wants to get hold of are the statistics from the Maidstone typhoid epidemic of eighteen ninety seven. Um, and also the measles, there were a lot of measles epidemics in Liverpool and she's gathering, she's, she's writing to Ross, and she's saying, look, I think I can get this material from here and this material from there um, and so forth. Uh, one little um, nugget that I got from the correspondence, which I thought was just quite interesting, that she told him that she was going to be away in Birmingham for a while because she's doing a fortnight's intensive electioneering. On behalf of a friend um and admirer of Ross, and this is um someone who's standing for the labor party but um, unfortunately um didn't um, didn't get in but i think it, it's nice to see a kind of a, a, you know a different side of her um here um and um uh and then we can see that um uh, correspondence continues, and in, in, in quite a kind of uh, informal way, Ross writes to her at one point. And says, "I haven't seen you for a long time. I suspect you must be getting scout or some other physical disability, So I notice ladies don't care a button about any other one." And then um, uh, she's invited to lunch because Lotka is going to have lunch um, with uh, with Ross. At this point, the correspondence is done from Ross's secretary um, because he's he's now had a had a stroke um, and. Um, uh, and although he's he's still sort of intellectually active, um, he's not physically uh, very strong. Um, then in 1931, the three papers do get published as a book um, with an introduction by Ross, but no numerical comparisons, just, just the three papers. Um, and then uh, the final thing in the archive is um, this, of history that Ross himself writes, um, and it's just a manuscript. But what's interesting, I think, is the fact that he, uh, what he writes is he says, well, you know, I'm very well known, of course, because of my uh, discovery for which I got the Nobel Prize. Um, But he says, in my own opinion, my principal work has been to establish the general laws of academics. Um, And, um, and I think it's very, uh it's very telling really that you know maths was always there for him. And and I he he re- he did recognize how important this work was, but it just didn't really get taken up sufficiently um when he was really in the in the thick of it. Um and um and so he he t- he recounts the he recounts the history of takes how long it took him and so forth, and then he's in as well. Um and then they, the Royal Society gave him the services of an accomplished mathematician, Miss Hilda P. Hudson. Um, and, and so forth. Um, so this is how Ross views it, looking back. Um, and of course, he's, he's into his seventies by now. Um, and as I say, he's he's not um, he's not very well. Um, so that um, is um, oh yes. So I wanted to say just a little bit about um, the some of the later responses um, to their papers. So we start seeing people writing about them from the fifties. Um, and people mentioned that Ross employed, uh, employed the idea of chance, probability, in formulating the basic equations. Uh, for the first time, it was possible to use a well-organized mathematical theory as a research tool in epidemiology. It's 1957. 1975, um, probably the most important contribution made by tropical medicine to theoretical and methodological corpus of contemporary epidemiology is the classwork of Sir Ronald Ross. Um, and then um, more recently, he Roberts. Roberts uh, uh, say that their work marks the start of infectious disease dynamics as a scientific field and so on. Um, what's uh interesting here is that I think that what we see mostly until a bit later is Hudson's name doesn't appear. It appears when if there's a if there's a bibliography, of course it appears because her name is attached to his um, as one of the authors of the paper. Um, um, I just wanted to mention a couple of uh, other uh, ways in which um, Hudson collaborated with Ross. And in 1916, uh, Ross is uh, doing some other mathematics and he writes a paper on the iteration of certain functions um, which later gets rejected by the Royal Society. And um, when you look in the Royal Society archives, we can see that Burnside, William Burnside, the group theorist writes a long, Uh, review um, articulating why it should be rejected. McMahon, person McMahon says, yeah, publish it, fine. And Forsyth says, yeah, okay, but you need to do something about it, so that's uh, rejected. Um, And in June 1917, Ross recommends that Hudson um, uh, asks if she'll help um, his friend, the biologist, um, Nuttall, who's uh, the professor of biology at Cambridge. And I just thought I would just show you this. So Ross writes enough and says, I've got your solution of your problem. And the problem is about body lice. Um, I hope it's all right. She's very busy with war work and says she's had to put down this note on the train. Now, of course, body lice was a real problem, again, for men in the trenches. So this was important work to be done. Um, And So what does she do? Um, So in the publication, um, we see that he writes that Miss H. B. Hudson has kindly calculated for me that a female body louse would have 1,918 descendants during her lifetime, and that the offspring of her daughters during their lifetime would number 112,778, which is rather an alarming prospect, I would suggest. Um, um, but it also says, I mean, the math that she needed to do this was not complicated, and I think it's quite revealing that somebody in this position wasn't able to work it out. Um, uh, for themselves but it also shows that you know she was happy to, she would she could if she could oblige she would um, and it, she didn't mind um, what it, what it was about if, um, uh, as far as mathematics is concerned um, so to conclude um, various uh, conclusions I've come to about this story one I think of course it provides us with an example of an opportunity provided by the war for women mathematicians um, and um, it demonstrates Hudson's versatility as a mathematician and her willingness and ability to collaborate. So we see that um, with the way she works with Ross and she gets him to change, you know, the ideas that he has about the way that the, the mathematical model that he's beginning to establish develops with her input. Um, also, her work, of course, in aer- aeronautics. Uh, she's a geometer. You know, these these are far, these all kind of away from, from, from geometry. And then, you know, the fact that she's happy to, uh, she'll write reviews for him, she'll, um, she'll help, you know, with the calculation for his to his cham on, on on body lines. Um I think it exposes Ross's lack of mathematical training. He couldn't have continued this work without her. But the mass, as anyone said, it wasn't there wasn't anything um, really difficult about it. But it needed her her Cambridge training to be able to just go straight to the heart of it and be able to sort out the differential equations properly and get the, get everything in in um, in reasonable mathematical order. Um uh, I think what's well, nice you see her, she starts off as an assistant, and um, by the end she's uh, he's describing her as an expert mathematician, um, which I which I very much like. Um I think it's worth observing the slow reception of the Ross Hudson papers. Uh, of course, being published during the war um, has got a lot to do with it. But I think in the two competing things really are the fact that there's the reluctance of the medical profession to engage with the mathematics and the fact that the novelty is in the application is not in the mathematics. So there was no reason really for the mathematicians to to get excited and start um, doing anything with it. Um, And I think um, uh, there's also the fact there's a tendency for Hudson's role to be passed over in her London Mathematical Society obituary, uh, which focuses, and, and rightly so, on her work in geometry. Um, it doesn't make any mention of her work as well. It lists the papers in um, her list of papers at the end, but there's, it's not even it's not even mentioned, the fact that she worked with them. Um, um, and um, I'd just like to, my final uh, remark is really, I want to thank very much the archivists who've helped me with this. Um, Claire Harrison at the Royal College of Physicians and Surgeons in Glasgow, Claire Franklin at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, and Rupert Baker at the Royal Society, all of whom have been immensely helpful, and particularly during the pandemic, sending me um, digital copies of things um, and uh, making me very welcome when I went went to the archives. So, um, and that's uh, where I'll stop. Thank you. Yeah, thank you.
1: Robert, what is now that Joe moves next to me here I'm on the stage, and then we have questions. And um, I um, also want to observe the online chat now. There is, I saw some some red thing with the chat, but I didn't see anything on my thing. Um, Joe, did you see anything? Just to check. I mean, I might have a, a, the wrong kind of channel here because I saw some red things in the in the. So it, let me put it this way: the problem is we are here in a webinar and people cannot ask. So, so, the problem is I have I see nothing here online, but there was something. That's why I'm confused. I mean, was there a the chat symbol? Never mind. So we go to the to the audience first, or probably exclusively oh, exclusive. yes, please. Thank you, everyone, for your presentation. So, one question: about the same period, uh, I
2: remember that Einstein's is related in general to theory. Rely
1: quite heavily on Minkowski's work because he was unable to do the differential geometry. He was unable to do the maths, but then that was very successful. And I'm not really sure why, you know, Einstein was able to pull out his work and take the, the works of Minkowski and other mathematicians and be ubiquitous nowadays, while here we see the same thing. So we see a novel idea. There is a, a lack in the maths department, but does not really gain the same traction. So my question is, is that due to the idea not being that groundbreaking in this case, you know, within the epidemics field? Or is it just, you know, Einstein was lucky enough to stumble upon someone who's very good at what they're doing to just kind of work that collaboration better? Yeah.
2: I mean, I, I think that's, the mathematics there is in a completely different league <laughs> to the math here, I think. Um, I mean, I think very much this case is not something that, the mathematicians i mean so we had Polya, we had um uh you know looking at it and saying and eddington i mean that recognizing that actually it's the it's the novel application and you need to kind of have some knowledge of the uh the medical knowledge about you know disease and contagion and, and all of these things um to recognize how important this could be in a public health arena but um Ross couldn't get the doctors interested in it. And actually, I think, I mean, I found this quite interesting because I found a parallel with um, mathematicians and engineers during the First World War. So there were... there were engineers who weren't interested in the in the mathematics, some of the mathematics in, in aeronautics, and there were mathemat- in this in that case, there were mathematicians who were saying, look, actually, you need you need to use mathematics to work out whether these airplanes are going to fly, or or how you get out of a spin, and all of these kinds of things. So it, it does seem to me that at this period, the the different constituencies, scientific constituencies, um, you know, are are a bit siloed um and uh and so trying of breaking down those barriers seems to be quite difficult and I think of course the war at this whole period does throw everything into disarray because people are their, their interests are you know not only elsewhere scientifically they're elsewhere emotionally I mean there's just so much going on so I think you know I can't take that out of the picture hi I'm interrupting this event to tell you about another awesome LSE podcast that we think you'd enjoy. LSEIQ asks social scientists and other experts to answer one intelligent question, like, why do people believe in conspiracy theories? Or, can we afford the super-rich? Come check us out. Just search for LSEIQ wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the event.
1: You mentioned uh, about Hudson's obituary, and no, uh, but there's no nothing about Ross, uh, working with Ross. What about Ross's obituary? Is there any mentioning of uh, him working with Hudson? Uh,
2: well, he me- he mentions her in his memoirs, um, and there, of course there are zillions of obituaries of Ross. I mean, you know, he's a hugely famous person, um, and so and he does masses and masses of of, of things. So this work is um, is probably listed. I mean, I haven't looked at all of uh, of Ross's um, obituaries. I wouldn't expect there to be um much there beyond her name being mentioned um saying that he worked with worked with her and that's a good point actually i should probably go back and look i mean there's just there's just so much you can find out so much about him um and the focus is, is very much on the um on the malaria side of side of things um but in her case i think you know she didn't have a huge um list of publications um and so, you know, they do stand out. When you look at her list of publications, they stand out. And it is, I know the person who wrote the obituary was a geometer, and it was, as I say, completely right that they uh, focused on because that was her mathematical contribution, and it was for a mathematical journal. But and um, they did mention her uh, World War I, the aeronautical work, but but only glancingly. So um, so I, I think I think it was just at that time when um you know, they just didn't see that it was of particular interest. Um, and maybe if they knew Ross's name, I don't know. I mean, I, I just, you know, when I looked, I realised actually that is quite surprising that they didn't make any mention of it at all individually. the
1: obituary. I, I have a question. Do you know if she was married Had the family?
2: No, no, she was not married. And you think no. that
1: it was um, almost a necessity for her to be able to work like that? Uh,
2: well, um, I mean, it's funny that I mean, her sister didn't marry either. Um, I mean, I she seems to have had lots of friends because she writes in her correspondence with Ross that she can't come and see him because she's doing this with her friends and she's doing she's looking after a friend who's ill and she's you know she seems to have a busy life and she's after she gives up working in um, for the you know after the war she, she does a lot of social work um, sort of volu- voluntary work um, but uh, I you know I about her personal life. You know, these are actually the only real, you know, this correspondence with her, and I think it's very, you know, you see she's very, she writes very freely with him, even though they maintain this um, sort of formal, you know, dear Sir Ronald, you know, yours, Hilda Hudson, but the actual content of the letters, you could see some of the quotes I made, that you know, it's quite, it's very chatty, Mm -hmm. Um, but uh, no, she was not, not, not yes, yes, yeah.
0: Yeah, yep. no, no, no. and he had a family. And uh, maybe, yep. Yeah, with a family, yeah. Um, I'm a sexologist. sociologist. Sociologist who's worked a lot with doctors. And um, <laughs> there are two things. One, I, I was reminding this about HIV. When HIV first appeared, it made people really, really ill. But the medics, they, there was almost nothing they could do. They could treat people, try to relieve their symptoms. Um, so, uh, the um, a, a sort of first 10 years or so, in a way, the epidemiologists and my friend here, and sociologists, behavioral people, it was, it was really quite prominent. You know, what are we going to do? It's behave, these are behaviors. Then, when, when the drugs were antiretrovirals, <laughs> we were sort of, there was this elbow, <laughs> they treat people. And suddenly it became by far the most dominant, sort of, um, came to dominate the whole business of HIV AIDS. Um, So that's one thing. So I think it's, um, the other thing about doctors it seems is they, they're not all, I did about mathematicians, but they're trained in, they're all trained in the same way, essentially. So that's first sort of five years and then And so they're very, it's like, they're very siloed as they emerge into make choices about am I mean, going to study malaria or obstetric? Siloed already. Um, whereas I, I don't know about mathematicians, but certainly sociologists, we're not very siloed. You know, uh, people nip about things.
2: Um, I, think, I think, I mean, to me, certainly mathematics has, has, has broadened out dramatically, I think, you know, in the, in the last 30 years. I mean, I wonder how many departments have people doing, you know, mathematics and biology, you know, 30, 40 years ago, um, for example. I mean, you know, I, I mean, I think that we see that, that a lot of it, I think math did go through a period of being very, sort of siloed in a way too. People are in your, you know, certain specialisms, and there are probably two other people in the world who could you could really talk to about are at the very top of your of your area. And I think there's much you know we see much more of this kind of integration now and, and departments with more uh you know different different departments coming together. Um so um but of course I mean there's always been you know the application of, of mathematics So, you know <laughs> I mean that's how it, it I mean, largely so much of the profession was because people were employing mathematicians to, you know, whether it was Frederick the Great employing Euler to build his fountains or whatever. I mean, you know, it's, um, uh, but I think things, things kind of narrowed down and have now really started to broaden out. I think you could probably,
1: it's a pandemic because I mean you did this work during a pandemic that yes. was I mean um, a connection there or was it a coincidence? Well or...
2: I'm interested in Hudson actually it was through my, uh, my colleague Jeremy who's here because we uh, did some work on geometry at Cambridge many years ago um, and that's where her name came up and because I'm just been interested particularly um, recently and interested in women in, in mathematics and I had a PhD student uh, Tony Royal who was looking at what women mathematicians did during the First World War and so her name very much came up then so I started looking at her again and then I sort of you know looked at these papers and I suddenly thought oh, I haven't ever really kind of noted you know they haven't they haven't ever been highlighted before yeah. so um, uh, but
1: nowadays I mean SIR models I didn't know before but all of a sudden I mean quite a few people know about them we, yeah yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah.
2: yeah. And, then, and then, you know that this is really one of the very first examples and it yeah. and it's down to her I and mean, she's the one who brings immunity into the picture
1: so these these compartments of I mean yeah. um, in, infected yeah. and, and uh, infected. immune and so on I yeah. yes yeah. there yeah. 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 yeah.
2: yeah.
0: Sorry, um, Junie probably said. Um, but how long was it before that it was generally accepted that the that the that the patterns and statistical processes which they seem to have, have um, started to to well to prove and establish were actually generally accepted throughout
2: um, the medical
0: profession? Yeah.
2: I think this paper by Kerma and McKendrick really started firing things off. That was the one. Yeah, yeah. Um, that, you know, people did respond to that. And, and um, certainly McKendrick had been writing other things as well. Um, and, and this, this I think, uh, and I think it was a more propitious time. Um, and uh, the fact that Ross actually also uh, managed to convince the, the Royal Society to, to help pay for the republication of those papers, I think, you know, it started... You know, there started to be a kind of groundswell of people realizing that there was something something here and, and the map you know and they were getting more deeper they were getting yeah, more deeply into the mathematics of it and actually um coming up with models that people could start start to use so i think that it, that is probably more the watershed moment um the, and then Kerma and mckendrick that that's the first paper they then go on and publish it's the one of, i can't remember how many of those three papers they published but um uh, but that's the one that really uh, sets things going. Um, but I think again, I think you know, Ross, Ross is um, is very much part of that story because he's you know the one who really encourages um, Kendrick to to use mathematics in this way because he's 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 a doctor as well um, as well Kendrick. Um. Um, that's,
1: that's <laughs> front wow. front row first. Oh. I'm intrigued by the fact that Hilda Hudson stopped working effectively um, because it must have been so hard for her as a woman to have studied at university, to have secured employment and then it seems that she chose to stop working or were well, there barriers thrown in her way? I, I
2: mean, I mean, my my reading of it, and I don't have, you know, kind of confidence, but I think that she must have become financially independent. Mm-hmm. Um, The job that she had at West Ham Technical Institute would have been basically a teaching job to maybe engineers um, and whatever. There was no way she was gonna get um, an academic job as we would know it today. The fact that Charlotte Scott, she got her professorship at Bryn Mawr, she could not have got the job here. Philippa Fawcett, who was above the senior angle in 1890, she kind of left maths more or less altogether. Um, The only woman really who carries on producing mathematics, I I mean, of course, there are a number, but I mean, one best known is Grace um, Chisholm, Grace Chisholm Young, but she didn't have a position, Um, it was her husband, um, a woman who had a position, I mean, mean, apart from, she could have gone back to Newnham uh, as a lecturer. But what what was the value in that for her Mm. when actually, if she was financially independent, she could do her research and she had the connections. That was the other thing, of course, by, um, uh, I guess, you know, that would have been advantageous for her being on the Council of the London Mathematical Society, for instance. Um, You know, she had her reputation with the ICM tour, with her publications, um, and then, uh, I mean, so I think um, there was, there would have been no advantage for her working um in, in mathematics because she, basically she would have been a school teacher more or yes. less um, not much better i mean that was the re- that was the reality
1: so she became freelance
2: yeah yeah she became an independent scholar yeah.
1: <laughs> thank you june for the talk uh, i was just wondering whether the we've had a mention of hiv aids um, whether there was any connection at all at the time of 1918-1919 to the great flu epidemic, which
2: I think... Yeah, no, actually, interestingly, they don't they don't mention that at all. And I think because, of course, that comes in the hiatus. You know, when, when Hudson stopped working, Ross has got cheesed off, um, and then it's 19... You know, it's 9, 1928 when they pick it up again. So you know, I think had Hudson gone back to work with Ross in 1919-1920, I think well, that the, the history could have been very different. Um, but there's no, there's no mention of it at all. And there's no, when they're looking at the statistics uh, and things, I mean, the, it's this typhoid epidemic in, um, in Maidstone and it's the measles epidemics in um, yeah. Liverpool. Um, but also, actually, I think it's Brownlee has done some um, uh, some work on that from the other perspective. So that there's a kind of interest in that there, but you're, I mean, it is curious, you might expect them to, to at least mention it in the, in the correspondence, but as I say, there is this kind of hiatus between sort of like, I think 1919, 1920 until, um, uh, and the way the correspondence goes, I have a feeling that they must have been in touch somehow in between, but there, there, there's nothing in the archives. Um, or nothing, you know, nothing in any of
1: the archives I've seen. Yeah. Speaking of the archives, I found it curious that you could find the reviews of an article. Is it common to keep reviews and even know the reviewers and so on oh. at the time where they're anonymous? Do you what, know, what,
2: I mean that like the
1: Burnside rejected this paper. I mean, yeah.
2: So the mm-hmm. it, it's wonderful. The Royal Society have um, they've kept all their referees' reports. So you can go and look at them. Um, and uh yeah, they make fascinating readings. <laughs> Sometimes they're high-candid, some of them. Um, so but uh, but that's unusual, unfortunately. I mean, things like the London Mathematical Society, because that was a peripatetic organization I think, until it settled down in mm-hmm. Russell Square. So I think you know, they the secretaries and whatever would pull in the, the referees' reports and they yeah. maybe hung on to them for a while, but they didn't have they didn't yeah. have anywhere to keep them but yeah. the Royal Society did and they and they and they kept them um
1: and, and uh, the, the, do you know whether they were anonymous these reviews or whether no, they no,
2: no, no. you know you could...
1: no 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 I mean so you as an author would know who referee were oh, or... um
2: they would sometimes they would be in co- in correspondence with them so I think they yeah I think they were anonymous with the um, um uh, with the authors yes yeah okay. um, but then sometimes they would
1: Yeah, Um, if it's a positive report. Yeah, yeah. yeah,
2: um, yeah. yeah. But I mean, yeah, but sometimes, no, I think they they definitely would have been anonymous with some of the things I've read. Yeah, Um. Yeah, because I found that. I mean, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Yes, they, I mean, they did, they, uh, Ross and and Hudson didn't know it was Eddington who'd Mm -hmm. um, who'd accept. And and the fact that it was just, there's only one referee's report. Mm -hmm. I mean, normally you would expect there to be more than one. But again, that may be because of the war. Um, But then they they got three people for Ross's other paper. but uh, so I. But this
1: was not an um, um, an epidemic paper. No, no, that, no, that was, his, was his, 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 his,
2: his, his 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 paper that the one that, that Burnside okay. yeah, said. Yeah. You know, basically this is this is um, you know tribute. Tri- yeah, that. more or less. <laughs> um, and and McMahon, McMahon was McMahon was kind of quite chummy with Ross. They'd been in communication okay. before anyway, so the, so he probably didn't even read it and just said yes, it's fine. Okay. Um, uh, so. Mm-hmm. Um,
1: Any other questions? Yeah, yes, please. Let's get the microphone and
0: then you can. A tentative question asked as a biologist and not as a mathematician. But one thing, uh, um, the the COVID pandemic has sort of encouraged people to keep an eye on the R value. Is this basically what uh, Ross and Hudson were working towards?
2: Um, well, I, I, I mean, I guess yeah. I mean, they were. You know, that, that's what you're. You know, you're trying to work out how many people are going to be infected. You know, at a particular. You know, you you look and you say, okay, at a certain time. You know, um, given what we know, what what's the situation going to be? And uh, you know, as as time progresses. So yes, um, although that's not what they how they. Um, how they framed it. Um, but what they, wanted to, what they wanted to do was have a mathematical model which would show, you know, given s- these constants that you, you had a handle on, then you could predict how the epidemic was going to um, progress and, you know, how long, you know, when, when would you expect it to peak? When was it going to die down? And so their model did show, you know, things like the seasonal variations and um, things. Um, so exactly. I mean, that's, um, you know, you want to know when is it going to start uh, paying off?
1: and because they didn't have computers to simulate something yeah. i mean yeah. uh, the the mathematics was challenging enough that you needed i mean yeah. somebody yeah. was I mean, good so, at it so um...
2: i think throwing the numbers at it was going to be a pretty you know challenging uh, mm-hmm. thing which is why they you know didn't do it straight away and why you know when hudson said look we're going to need we're going to need statistics with that she said with thousands of of uh, data points. So, I mean, you know, that's going, that's going to be, the- but, but these
1: curves were explicit calculations.
2: Yeah. So the, so the math produced, gave them the curves and they mm-hmm. wanted to see that then if you actually had some statistics okay. and, and would they, would the two things marry, right. marry that's together? Right.
1: Yeah. Well, so let me conclude then with a comment from the online audience by Jeffrey Thomas and says, uh, thanks you very much. And, um, I think we can all confirm what this, uh, what uh, he says a very illuminating and thorough presentation. I think we learned a lot. So thank you very much.
2: Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the LSE Events podcast on your favourite podcast app and help other listeners discover us by leaving a review. Visit lse.ac.uk forward slash events to
0: find out what's on next. We hope you join us at another LSE event soon.